0: Oh, hello, today I'd like to welcome Jorrit Aminga, a Dutch artist who currently teaches electronic music composition at the Conservatorium van Amsterdam and sound design at HK Utrecht. Uh, so, Jorrit has a wide practice which covers electronic composition, live electronics, spatialization, sound synthesis and creative programming. Jorrit's work has been heard all over the world in a variety of venues, from concert halls to factories. Uh, He's been featured in many festivals, such as the 2007 festival Musik, where he was commissioned to write a piece for the opening, and he's also worked in music theatre. Jorrit is primarily a Super Collider user, and shares many creative coding interests with Flucoma. He recently attended a flukoma workshop in Utrecht, and today, as well as learning a bit more about his practice, uh, we shall also be hearing about his experience with the tools and how he feels they could enrich in his practice. So, Jaret, hello, and thank you for joining me today. Yes, thank you
1: for Um, inviting
0: me. You're quite welcome. Uh Um, So perhaps you could begin by uh, talking a bit more about your practice and how you got into the world of electronic music.
1: Yeah, so where it all started? Yeah, um, it started, I guess, when I was, I guess, twelve or thirteen, where I learned programming on a ZX Spectrum computer. I'm not sure if familiar with that one, but it was a very tiny computer with where every key was a whole world, a bird. So with one P, you could. Uh, type prints and f- with the F there was the four words already, so you could type very quick code. And the only thing I could do with that computer was coding. And later on, I bought a Atari computer, um, so the, the famous Atari uh, ST from the from the 80s, because yeah, that's where I grew up in the 80s basically, and <clears throat> I used this Atari computer mainly to. To create a band, actually, I was playing in a band, but these bands, they didn't like to play my music. Probably the the tempo were too high or the chord changes were too weird, so I used mainly the computer to, yeah, to to form a band basically. So I think that's where it started. So with a little bit of experience with this set spectrum programming, going to the Atari, making music with that, and I had only two discs. One was Cubase and the other one was the was basic so programming so that I could do or making music in Cubase or programming so that's where it started
0: yeah so it was uh, music making from the very beginning when you go into yes programming.
1: yeah 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 from, from from the start yeah yeah and then the and the only possible education in Holland by then in what was it 1991 when I graduated when I was searching for an education I was music and technology in uh, HKU in Utrecht. So that was a very logical next step, which is where you're teaching now. Yes. (laughs) Yeah, I stayed there in a way. Well, I I went I went away. I I, I went to do a master in Synology, which is not a famous institute in Holland when it comes to electronic music. Uh, And then I went back to music and technology to teach. Yes um so i'd love to gain a bit
0: of insight on your creative practice um so in some of our pre-interview chats i asked if maybe there were some specific pieces um, that may give a good demonstration or representation of your work and the first you mentioned was empty mind by Wim Hindrix, um, which is for oboe and electronics uh, for which you made the electronics um, so I watched a great video uh, by the Antwerp Symphony Orchestra where the composer and others discuss the piece, <laughs> which I'll link to below. Um, and they described the electronics as wanting to achieve some kind of super oboe with polyphonic capabilities. So I was wondering if uh, you could describe the project to us um, and especially how you worked uh, approached working with another composer and uh, building the electronics for the piece.
1: Yeah. So I have, a, I have a very long collaboration with Wim Hendrix already, so this is one of the many pieces we did uh, together. Um, we started from scratch, literally. Um, we started with a session with no oboe player, a microphone, a laptop, and an empty score, basically, literally an empty score. And we were in a studio of Jean d'Action, which is a, a famous uh, electronic ensemble from Antwerp, and Wim Hendricks mentions things like, well, I'm curious what will happen if we program a harmonizer. So I did some live coding, let's say, so I added an octave. And then I said, "Okay, maybe we can do a whole harmonic series on top of the oboe. Let's see what happens if we do uh, um, the tuning of the oboe itself as a kind of harmonizer. So we were just improvising in a sense where the oboe player was play was giving information the composer had some ids and i so we were feeding each other with ids with sketches we had four also four speakers so we could also do some very simple specialization uh, tricks i didn't prepare anything so i had to type everything literally from scratch and of course there wasn't time give me an hour no i had to do very fast quick, uh, coding tricks in order to um, to get a fast result. So based on this session, um, we went all uh, different ways, let's say. Um, and halfway the, the conceptualization of the piece, Wim Hendricks mentioned this um, uh, this mega or big oboe, let's say as, as a tube of ten meters or hundred meters long. So that I like that idea also. That we can take this oboe and make it very giant, like very big in a kind of physical modeling um, approach. So I took this idea of the um, this harmonizer also one step further. So I thought, okay, maybe I can create a harmonizer, which is, of course, creating other pitches, but is also at the same time, function like um, a kind of spectral enhancer. So on one side, it was very technical, but it was a kind of technical solution to the concepts Wim Hendrix uh, gave me. So it was, he gave some concepts, I gave some concepts back, and that looping process uh, went on until he finished a score. Then I checked out the score, obviously, and I based on this score and the modes and the rhythmic uh, uh, patterns and so on. I based my live electronics, I finalized my live electronics and there's one one thing sorry that that, that that speaks so much but i want to no, mention one please. one one very interesting thing um it started out for a piece for for oboe and eight speakers so oboe and live electronics then when wim hendrix heard the final result uh, we i think we played the piece two or three times he got a commission to write a piece for oboe uh orchestra and live electronics and what he did is he took the skeleton of the original piece and he orchestrated the live electronics so the electronics i made he then re-orchestrated basically so all the harmonizers the spectral delays and so on were then put in the orchestra so i like this idea that electronic sounds can also uh, inspire a composer to even take it one step further so when that's Piece was finished. Of course, I had to thin out all my electronics because some of the electronics were already taken care of by the orchestra. Um, So that was, yeah. So that's what I wanted to mention. That there was a a kind of a an extra uh, result. So the orchestra piece. Yeah, and so when so
0: you'd have this uh, preemptive project where you'd where he kind of got an idea of the kind of different sonic textures that your electronics could produce and so in terms of orchestration he he had that kind of palette and he was able to kind of uh, mix those into his orchestration or...
1: Yes, yeah, but sonically, I mean I gave him of course uh, um, the terminology like spectral delay, spectral harmonizer and so on so he could based on that also recognized the sonic results of my live electronics and then he was sonically tried to mimic for instance spectral delay that the first the flute came in then the then a clarinet then a double bass and so on so that instead of having one chord that the notes come in one after the other for as as a simple example yeah and so was that project using super collider as well yes yeah, it was, was, Yeah,
0: yeah. Well, it was interesting um, as you were describing the the very beginning of that creative process, talking about live coding with the composer. Because um, another of the another artist on the project, uh, Chris Kiefer, uh, at the University of Sussex, um, he did a piece with uh, Alice Eldridge. And he use, he's a super collider user and he, he talking about his sessions with her he was also talking about live coding um experimenting with things on the fly so is super collider and the kind of tech space paradigm something that lends itself
1: particularly well to that kind of practice uh once you get used to it yes i mean for a starter maybe not and I, i'm not saying i'm the most experienced super collider at the moment but i feel kind of comfortable uh, with it now. So, when I develop my own tools at home in the studio, um, I also start sketching. So, this sketch approach, typing one line uh, and then execute and it already gives a sonic result, um, I can use the same approach in um, in a, in an in a, in a improvisation session with an instrumentalist. So, it's not live coding as a, a stage performance. I mean, that also exists obviously, but this is mainly As a tool to create fast results or to interact and uh, immediately, oh, let's try out, maybe I can change uh, um, a pitch shift or whatever. And within SuperCollider, there are already great um, tools for this. Uh, I also made some tools myself um, for this live approach or for this improvisation approach, where I can very easily add some faders to all the parameters I want to change in real time. So the combination of the tools already available in Supercollider and some additions of my own, it works for me as, yeah, uh, very good in an improvisation session like I described with the oboe. Yeah. Um, So another project you
0: mentioned uh, was a collaboration you did uh, with the recorder player Eric Bosgraf called Dialogues. Uh, where you did, again, the Life electronics. Um, So this is a fascinating project. It's a kind of revisiting of Pierre Boulez's piece uh, that was originally for clarinet uh, Dialogue de l'ombre double. Mm. Um, And I must say, it's a beautiful record. Um, So again, perhaps you could go over how you approached the project, um, how you approached working with another musician, such as Eric, and um, how you approached, a lesser-known but still monumental piece by a composer like Boulez.
1: Yeah, so I met Eric in 2005, I think, where we, no 2006, when we were asked to do, you mentioned it earlier, to do the opening of the festival, the old music festival in Utrecht. And uh, I made a piece for him uh, based on a Dutch composer, Jacob van Eyck. He's, well, he has the same name as you, but uh, but Jacob van Eyck is a Unknown composer, but he wrote thousands of improvisations and pieces for recorder in 1650, something like that. But he was also a bell player, and I'm really fascinated by bells. Uh, my father used to be a bell player, and I'm yeah, that's also part of my DNA basically. So I made a piece for recorder and live electronics, mimicking mimicking the or combining actually the sound of the recorder. And bell sounds. So try to make the, the convert the sound of the bell with harmonizing techniques into bell sounds. And so we already had a, a starting point there. We also did some other music theater pieces, and then Eric um, wanted to make um, his own version or let's say um, transcription or whatever you call it uh, of the, uh, the 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 dialogue de l'ombre double. And he got official uh, permission by Pierre Brulles. So, we started recording that piece first uh, and keep as close to the original as possible, using the instructions uh, from the score. Very precisely, I didn't use glider there, actually. Well, yeah, I did, but uh, only for the piano reverb. Okay, but that's a different story. So, we were in the studio recording all these Crazy fast uh, virtuosic uh, uh, licks, and then we used two extra uh, um, sessions in the same studio to record some improvisations. So we wanted to have the the Boulez piece, obviously that was the main the main course, so, so to speak. But we also wanted to put some improvisations as a kind of reaction to that. So we were in this mindset of recording Boulez. So that was probably somewhere in the back of our heads. So we want. To do something different, way slower, way more sound-based, where the piece of boulez is very pitch and and very uh, pitch and rhythmic-based, we wanted to do something completely different. So I used patches uh, or, or programs I developed in SuperCollider, all uh, um, which I used also in previous pieces which I did with Eric, um, and we recorded like 20 or 30 improvisations. And yeah, that's that's usually how it goes, I think, with many other musicians as well. Um, after the recording sessions, we you know we digested everything, and maybe two or three months later we decided, okay, let's use that piece, that piece, that piece, that piece, and then we thought of an order, and that's how it was. I think I did a little bit of editing here and there, but not much. So we wanted also to stay honest to the arches rebuilt within the studio sessions uh, that day yeah. so you see you do a lot of recording and working off uh, the recordings
0: is uh what we hear on the record for example is most of the electronics going to be live electronics or is
1: that yeah, it was thing? all it was all live yeah so so for the, so of course the Boulez piece was completely pre-recorded obviously but all the others um there was no um so we were sitting in in the well eric was in uh one studio room, I was in the other room, we could see each other obviously. Um, but Pro Tools was running, re- recording a stereo track of me and the microphones of Eric, and that's it. So the editing was mainly there were some clicks or some glitches we didn't like so much, but that was mainly it. So it's, it's a literally live improvisation, yeah. Cool. Um
0: Maybe we could discuss some of the flucoma tools specifically now. Um, So you attended a flucoma workshop in Utrecht recently. um, And I know that you've been able to have a bit of a play with them since um so you mentioned in some of earlier talks that you'd specifically made use of the fluid pitch or fluid buff pitch maybe but i'm assuming fluid pitch then yes um, for the life uh, process yeah. yes um so perhaps you could talk a bit more about that
1: and how you yeah but that was me reason. i mean i needed a very good pitch follower that was basically it and i, I played around messed around a little bit with the the built-in uh pitch object and super collider and with the tartini object and I find a way, found a way for myself to fine-tune it for the purposes I needed it for, for oboe, for clarinet, for voice, and so on and so forth. But I missed, for instance, the yin object, uh, which was part of, or you could download it for a Maximus P. Um, so then Fluid Pitch came out for me, and then I said, okay, that's the one I need. Also for, for instance, um, processes like, and I hope I can remember, there's this pitch shifting technique, um. PSOLA, pitch synchronous overlap and add, uh, pitch shift, which also needs a very good pitch follower. So whenever I do PSOLA techniques for, for instance, for vocal processes, um, I need a good pitch follower. And with fluid pitch, that works way better than with the, the other two. So I know this is only 1% of uh, flucomo, obviously, but this the only object I've been using for over the last year also in shows and so on. all the other uh, objects and I uh, um, I already checked um, your question out. Um, I think I I can replace many of the stuff I'm doing already with KD trees and and neural nets and stuff like that with the flucoma uh, uh, objects. I'm not there yet at the moment, but that's that will be my next step I guess. Yeah.
0: Yeah, because uh you said that you're very interested in especially parameter mapping um, yes, using yes. neural networks yeah, and yeah. machine learning like that. So I imagine that up till now you've perhaps been using something like Wackinator or
1: Well, I've I've seen Wackinator obviously. Um and but I now I use there's a, a library from Nick Collins called um what's it called again? Um Let's see. well there's I, I forgot the library but in this library he programmed neural nets uh, ob- objects and the neural net for training is using an external program so that's actually what i'm i've been using um so i'm not the because the superglider is quite fast but not so good with arrays so with the neural nets external uh next to it um that works good for me at least to train or to, to map my three or four faders let's say for a very multi-dimensional uh, uh plugin for instance yeah so oh. in, in a way I'm, I'm using the it's the same philosophy as recognizer. yeah um well maybe we
0: could kind of stay around that theme for a moment because mm-hmm. um when I asked if there are any kind of recurrent themes or interests in your practice, you you mentioned the mappings of a few, uh, few controllers to many parameters, things like that, and and also preset morphing. Yeah. So I was preset if, morphing. Yes. Yeah, yes. I was
1: wondering if you could
0: break that down
1: because I yeah. don't quite. Yeah, preset morphing, but at the same time also sound morphing, and they of course they can be related. Uh, and for me, it's a little bit like the holy grail. Of, uh, of electronic music, at least for me. And I've seen this also historically, this theme popping up every once in a while. You have, you have sound A, you have sound B, and you go as fluid, fluid as possible from A to B. And um, when you have a, a, a sound or, or a synthesis, synthesized sound or whatever, where you can, can control many parameters simultaneously, then with preset mapping you can ideally go very fluidly from sound a preset a to preset b and um, that's actually one of my main things also musically uh, or in in live electronic processes that I like these fluid gestures and also and with fluid i mean that's it's it's hard well you don't hear weird steps let's say so it's, it's it becomes an expression method in its own and i'm then also while doing this while programming this but when composing this 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 uh morph so to speak i'm mainly focusing on how the shape would go is it linear is it more exponential is it a sinusoidal shape um is the the speed of of change constant, or is there a kind of acceleration and then a kind of di return to towards the end, let's say. So I'm very fine tuning all these these separate parameters how they are scaled, and for that I'm using of course my ears mainly, and all sorts of yeah mapping shapes.
0: Yeah. It's interesting that um, that you approach that from from uh, with the actual generative parameters that are creating the sounds. Because I mean, I know there's there's one object in the toolkit. I think it's called audio transport. Transport. Which, yes. Yeah, yes. Which does a spectral yeah. Um,
1: yeah. interpolation between yes. two
0: sounds. Yeah. Is that something that interests
1: you? Yes. As well. It? Yeah. A lot. The, in in when I was uh, a student so way back in the nineties. Um, There was a programmer in my school who programmed based on the theories and the FOX5 things from Trevor Richards. He programmed his own uh, spectral morphing program. And it's to my taste still one of the best uh, audio morphings where you have literally sound A and sound B. You can draw a curve in between and the sound morphs brilliantly based on spectral analysis from A to be and unfortunately, I well I know this 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 programmer very well, but he didn't have the time yet to port it to the recent OSX uh, um, um, operating system, so it only functions on 10.4 or something. Um, but I liked that sounds a lot, and I made my own well kind of cheating. Um, uh, object as well, which mimics the same behavior sound, so- sonically. So there's sound A, and with a slider, I can go to sound B, um, mimicking the um, the sonic quality of that program I mentioned earlier. So with with finding where are the peaks in the spectrum, and then with some frequency shifting, you get all this glissandi from sound A A to B but it's fake. I mean, it's not as brilliant as this audio transport uh, object, but sonically, sometimes I prefer my own cheating uh, um, solution, because that was based on some, st- uh, some aesthetics, let's say, I wanted to hear in the sounds.
0: Yeah. Well, uh, that's something that I'd be quite interested to to, to hear about as well. Um, when you're looking to to develop a, a, a tool or a, or a project something mm-hmm. like that um, when you're kind of turning to these techniques um, any kind of machine learning or descriptors or automatic slicing or creative coding in general um, do you say that would you say that you turn to them in quite a functional manner do they empower you to to bring your musical dreams to reality um or are they something that is quite creatively uh, stim- stimulating do you see them as a tool and to an end or would you consider well, their configuration
1: as a kind of fundamental part of your creative practice <laughs> yeah sometimes it's, it's a tool uh, like for instance when i do parameter mapping or one-to-many mapping that i d- i only have two hands which can turn knobs and instead of Having 14 or 16 faders controlling one plugin. So then it's just handy to, uh, to have this mapping, um, uh, mapping ID. But what is my fascination in using uh, programming languages and, and formulas and algorithms uh, the surprise element. So, for instance, this morphing thing, of course, it's nice that I can get this morphing as sounding nice as possible, but when I'm going from sound A to B and sometimes I can discover something in the middle, which I couldn't have achieved, you know, by improvising or whatever. So I like this, call it happy accidents or surprises or uh, whatever you like to call it. Um, That's my, I think, my main reason to use programming
0: yeah it's that's certainly something that i know in a lot of the um plenaries and various meets that we've had over the three years as the projects that's a a theme that seems to have been quite recurrent in a lot of creative coders uh, talking about that surprise being surprised finding that thing but also getting your system into a place where you're kind of expecting the surprises but it's quite it's quite a delicate balance to find um i suppose one uh way of discussing that as well is um and sort of learning about your creative process is um when you're approaching a project or approaching a piece um many of the people i've talked to have talked about uh, wearing different hats and at one point being in coding mode at one point being in uh, performance mode um and i was wondering are those ch- hat changes quite fluid for you and um, do you have to be in a certain mindset to do one thing or, and another to do another and um, how do you kind of navigate that kind yeah. of uh, yeah but that, that,
1: yeah that of, of course it also happens uh, to me so um when i plan my day or my week or my month or my year even um I make sure that there's time enough to uh, experiment. So, in the beginning stage of, of a project, whether that it's creating sound design for Wim Hendrix, for instance, or preparing a live electronic patch or a composition, there's always well the empty screen starting. And um, but there's also pen and paper to sketch ideas, to write down concepts, and so on. So that's the sketching phase, maybe tryout phase, <clears throat> um, programming. so then it's all creative, whatever. But there comes a point where well, the deadline is approaching or you should sh- sh- send a demo or whatever. and then it's more about production or, or producing. So then all the sketches and all the the yeah, all the sketches should be finalized or should be, Rock steady when it comes to a performance uh, side. So then it's this production part can be making sure that the sounds are sounding okay, that the composition has a nice arch and a nice shape, that the live electronic patches uh, won't fail, uh, and so on. So then it's more production based. And that's definitely a different head, different mindset. It is in a way, more bookkeeping-like, let's say. Um, and then in my um, ca- agenda, um, or in my case, my kind of to-do list, uh, there's a, there are checkboxes then, for, because then I know very clearly, OK, check if this is long enough, check if this is not too loud, and so on, and so on. So, so then it becomes very practical, um, um, and that's yeah that can be fifty percent of the of the work sometimes twenty percent depending on the on the project. And then of course the, the the third stage could be the performance side, which is then completely different hat, different approach. Yeah, great. Um,
0: one other thing that I'd like to get um, your input on, um, especially as uh, you're a teacher yourself as well. Um, I'm curious to know that um, when you, over the course of your practice, you know, um, encountering all these new different sets of tools that come out, uh, that do various functions, things like that. um, I'm curious to know if you've ever had any particular frustrations that you often find yourself coming up against, um, perhaps in terms of interface or learning a new tool. Um, And I'd like to know, How you like to be introduced to a tool set and and also um if it's very important to you to have uh a great access to the very low level workings of an algorithm or if you prefer to take a higher, more conceptual view over the thing. Um (laughs) yeah, I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on that.
1: Yeah, but that's uh because you started with the the teacher approach, but but that that's completely different than my own work. Indeed. Yeah. So what do you like to hear? First, uh, let's go with your approach
0: first, okay. how you like to be yeah. here. Yeah,
1: um, so in my case, I don't mind whether it is uh, the, the tool is in C++ and I have to compile it myself or that it has a very fancy interface. Um, so depending from project to project, sometimes I like a DAW like Logic because that mixes way better than I would do my mixing in SuperCollider, and I'm not so let's say, conservative, I'm not so strict, let's say I, I only have to do it in super collider. So some things, well, a lot of things I do in super collider, but also other practice I do in Logic um, for the more mixing uh, stage and programming synthesizers for some uh, projects. So then I like that um, workflow, and for others, I like the, the programming workflow. So in that sense, I can switch quite uh, quickly. I think I believe. Um, I of course I tried out also other tools um, like Audio Sculpt, and uh, I've, I've been working with uh, Ableton Live a little bit. Uh, I used to do a lot of Max MSP until whatever two thousand two, I think. So that's way that's past past tense, let's say. But yeah, for instance, now this flucoma is maybe a good good uh, um, starting point. Um, that's a new philosophy for me, uh, in the sense that all the... But today I also spend a little bit of time to, to get used to the philosophy of flucoma in relation to Supercollider where all the processes are not stored in arrays, but in buffers. So the more buffer appro- uh, uh, approach. So I think that will take a little bit of time for me to get used to that. But yeah, I'm not sure if that's an answer to your No, yes, question. well,
0: it's it's the the whole buffer paradigm, mm-hmm. something that um, that has that was widely discussed over the project. Um, it certainly it certainly took me a bit of getting used to um i'm a max user but okay. um mm-hmm. but yeah um so that was perhaps one of the more frustrating parts that you 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 found yourself coming up against when using the tools
1: yeah uh, well yes because my own paradigm would be for now uh, what it used to be okay i used the uh, the server side and SuperCollider to create the, well the sound design part and, and all the oscillators and all the envelopes and the filters and so on. And the controlling part and all the modes I'm using and all the series and numbers, I would use arrays for that in, on, the, on the client side. Of course, I was, was using buffers, but only to store FFT information and, and samples and so on. But hardly every hour sometimes control voltages of well, control um, uh, signals, but not so much actually. But well when I was checking it out today uh again, I was thinking maybe it is there is a um a use, no not a use, there may be a reason for it. Maybe it's more CPU friendly, maybe to use buffers instead of arrays, because I know arrays are very slow in super collider. Especially large areas, multidimensional arrays are really really slow, uh in super collider compared to programs like processing or, or C and so on. So yeah, but I, I think I have to reprogram or re well translate some of the stuff I already did and see if in super in, in Flucoma it works way more fluid or, or faster CPU-wise. Yeah. <coughs> sorry uh do you think then that um you'll
0: find yourself uh translating things from buffers into arrays to to bring it into a format that you're more used to or do you think you would assimilate the buffer?
1: yeah nice well because what i was doing today (coughs) um i was working with the chroma uh, objects to with the recorder uh recording uh to see if I, i i could use it and i found myself indeed translating the buffer information into arrays uh, and then processing them but yeah maybe i should find a way and maybe there is probably that i can stay within the server side way longer maybe that makes the the all the processes way faster and more um yeah refined maybe but yeah i am i'm, I'm I was used to use uh, arrays and collections and dictionaries uh, before this. Yes, definitely. Yeah.
0: Well, I know the team are working hard to make uh, lots of sets of tutorials and stuff to just kind of introduce people into into the buffer paradigm and stuff. And I'm not on the programming team, well, but I'm, I assume that there's there is a reason for it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And so, uh, yeah, maybe now from the perspective of uh, of teaching these kinds of things to people. Yes,
1: that's a good yeah. So when I started teaching, um, and also larger groups, for instance, music and technology, uh, it's, it's it's a pretty big school. We have ninety students a year, so total, including the master students, we have uh, a school of three hundred sixty students, and I. Teach, for instance, a course in year one, which is called Sound Design. And it's about sound synthesis, technique sampling, and so on. And for the first 10 years or so of my teaching practice, um, I was using SuperCollider a lot in, in, to explain things, to show things. But I got a lot of critique from the students and comments, not very offending, let's say, but they, well, I got uh, tips let's put it that way, because most of those students, they come in with an Ableton Live background, or an Apple Studio background, or a Cubase background. So what I slowly did is, okay, go to their mindset. So starting with, in Ableton, Logic showing the stock plugins. So, okay, what's already available? What do you all have? And, and, and I mainly use open source or free plugins to start with. And then very, uh, no, not very often, occasionally I then use, still use Supercollider to explain, OK, this is possible in logic, but you can also do it in this way. So that was, uh, I needed to invest some time, for instance, to learn uh, to work in Ableton Live. I don't use Ableton Live in my own practice, but I should be able to show them the, the basics of uh, of Ableton Live, for instance. So that was a tool I needed to learn from scratch. I mean, it's not so hard, but still, I wanted to be able in the lesson to be, okay, double click and quickly uh, start a sound or, or make some interesting routing and so on. Um, on the other hand, too, yesterday I was teaching in Amsterdam, um, a course electronic music for the bachelor students as well. But it's a smaller group. It's very. It's it's, it's not 90 students, but four or well, three or four students. And there I dare to start SuperCollider from scratch. So I gave them the task, uh, okay, download SuperCollider on Mac and PC and Linux. And there I said, okay, let's start boot the server, play a sign tone. And then I built from that and also f- listen a little bit what they want to achieve with it. And based on that, together we Build programs from scratch. So with a smaller group, uh, uh, I don't mind to start a, on a very low level with a program like SuperCollider. But with a large group uh, where, where there's a lot of variety and level, then I think, uh, well, I, st- I, I have to, I think I have to start with uh, Ableton Live, let's say, as a starting point.
0: So that's to do mainly with the differences in levels of the students.
1: Yes, and the and, the, and the, the the group size, and in Amsterdam the groups are way smaller. And I know, there I am there now. There are two teachers of electronic music there in their in their curriculum. One is more focusing on recording, mixing, mastering, and I do basically all the rest, which is still a lot, obviously. And in Utrecht, so the other school, which is of, uh, which is, uh, which is 90 students each year, um, we have 40 teachers. So I only have one segment, which is sound design. And we have four teachers who are teaching Maximus P, Collider, JavaScript, and so on. So that also is a, it's a big difference. So in, in Utrecht, I have to focus mainly on the sound design part showing in at first the, the standard sound design tools.
0: Yeah, well, it's it's certainly a concern of the Flucoma project as well as I'm sure you'll be aware having attended one of the, the workshops, you know, how to kind of teach these things to, yeah. to different people and also how to introduce people to to paradigms within the tool set, such as the buffer paradigm, which isn't necessarily a way that people can be used to to approaching the
1: yeah but i think it also starts yeah it starts at least to me one step uh, earlier and that is why would you use uh Flucoma or any tool for that matter so if you can interest or show students that okay with ableton you can do this and this and this but if you want to do this special thing then you need extra tools in order to do so or you want to go one step further and so on and I think in Utrecht in, in the Flukuma course, well, you got the interest the, the students who are really interested interested in this domain. Um, but if I would have 90 students and then try to convince them to use Flukuma, then I sh- should think of a a trick, let's say. Mm-hmm. Well, certainly,
0: probably the, the Max for Live, perhaps, is something that could bridge that gap. Yes, definitely.
1: Um, yeah, yeah, that, I see that happening, yeah.
0: Yeah, and I know uh, Rodrigo Constanzo um, has made some Max for Live um, modules that um, that use some of the flucoma tools as well, so that's uh, beginning to, to be a thing. So, yeah. yeah. That's great. Great. Well, sorry, thank you so much for that. Um, I think that was a really good chat, and I think people be very interested to have learned about your practice and uh, to see how you're you're beginning to incorporate the tools into your practice. Mm -hmm. Um, Thank you so much for that. You're welcome. Um, I'll be linking all of the various uh, videos and pieces and people that we've talked about um, over the course of our conversation below this, um, so people will be able to uh, access that there. So, Jarrett, thank you very much, and I shall speak to you again soon. Yes.